0: Welcome to Fontanel, the podcast with a soft spot for pediatrics. I'm Caroline Storey, a pediatric trainee in Wessex, and I'm in the Dorset County Hospital Children's Centre with Dr. Claire Hollingsworth, a consultant general pediatrician, and we're talking today about bronchiolitis. We'll be using as our starting point the Wessex Healthier Together clinical pathway on bronchiolitis. This is one of several clinical pathways. And I'd encourage you to go to the Wessex Healthier Together website where you can find these, along with lots of other resources. And in particular, it's worth taking a look at the parent information leaflets, which are all traffic lighted um, and provide a way of safety netting to parents. This is a website which is aimed at GPs and hospital staff so that they can make sure that they're all working to the same framework. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Claire Hollingsworth and bronchiolitis.
1: So I think the first thing to say is bronchiolitis is really common. Um, Bronchiolitis is caused by a viral infection. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of viruses that can cause bronchiolitis, and the most common one that we see in our little children um, is respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. But there are other types of virus that can cause the same symptom pattern and they're managed in essentially the same way. Um, Typically adenovirus would um, be a cohort of children that may have more severe symptoms and maybe the ones that are more likely to go on to develop further complications like bronchiolitis obliterans or um, they're more likely to be needing to be intubated. Mm. But certainly we have um, the the biggest number of um, cases of bronchiolitis is, is down to rsv over the winter period
0: and and rsv is just something that is about isn't it it
1: yeah. causes the common cold in Absolutely. the or so we would get a nasty snotty yeah. coldly disease but um when infants so in the uk we describe this group um of kids who get bronchiolitis they're they're under a year of age and when they get rsv they start with a, exactly the same symptoms really as a as an adult they're snotty um runny nose they cough, um, they may sneeze as well, and then in smaller children in that infant group, they develop respiratory uh, symptoms on top of that, so they will have an increased work of breathing, whereas our, as adults, our virus is sort of maintained in the upper airway, mm-hmm. children will have lower, or infants will have lower airway involvement, including um, more secretions, so lots of mucus production, yeah. they'll have bronchoconstriction and so they will then develop this very classical pattern, uh, pattern that we see where for the first few days of their illness they'll be snotty and maybe sneezing and coughing and then perhaps day three to four of the illness they'll develop increased work of breathing and with that we see all different types of signs in children, in tiny babies um, they may head bob, they, we may see in drawing, so um, subcostal recession and intercostal recession. And again, in, in the older infants, we'll see those similar signs. Um, in children where their neck isn't so fat that it's covering up their sternal notch, you'll see tr- tracheal tug. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, there are implications on babies feeding, because mm. little babies obviously feed on milk. And they are also what we call obligate nasal breathers. So they want to breathe through their nose, and when their nose is full of snot, they can't. So um, that means that when you put a bottle or a boob in their mouth, uh, they spit it out because they want to breathe over feed, which is yeah. a good, um, it's a good survival that makes mechanism. Sense. <laughs> but it means that. Um, children with bronchiolitis who are really struggling um, cannot feed enough and they can become dehydrated. So that's uh, another problem that we see alongside the respiratory uh, Mm. symptoms. So they're the two main sort of branches of what what we worry about, Yeah. the so breathing and the feeding. Absolutely. And when I'm assessing, I think when GPs and junior doctors are assessing children with bronchiolitis, it's a good framework just to think about the respiratory side of things and then the feeding side of things. That because right, yeah. in terms of admission criteria and when we would start to worry more and want to bring these children into hospital, I would think about those in those two groups. So I would think about the respiratory reasons why a child might need to come to hospital, such as if their work of breathing is really significant, that they look like they're actually getting physically and uh, physically tired. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is the um, is the measurement of oxygen saturation. So mm-hmm. within our respiratory assessment, um, the efficacy of breathing can be measured by how well oxygen is being delivered to the tissues, and if children are struggling to deliver adequate oxygen to their tissues, then that's another reason, obviously, that they would mm. need to come to hospital for additional oxygen and mm. um, therapy and um, supplementation.
0: Yeah. So if
1: so, if there
0: are low saturations or there's
1: significant work of breathing, that would be a criteria for admission. Yes, certainly. So if, so if you look at the uh, Wessex Healthier Together Bronchiolitis Pathway, um, it's really nicely um, sectioned up into our green and our amber and our red high risk um, in terms of severity of illness, and that would um, have implications then about admission. So if your saturations are less than 92%, it puts you into the red high risk category box, and that would certainly need um, to be assessed in hospital Um respiratory rate above 70 breaths per minute in an infant again puts you into the red high risk group and again would imply that you'd need further assessment in a in a secondary care setting.
0: Okay so in that red high risk group we've mm. got that low SATs, um, it talks about cyanosis as well mm. and unable to rouse so obviously they're really worrying features. Yeah. Um, what about this AMBER intermediate risk group, what do we do with those? So that's ones who um, may have pallor, they've got increased work of breathing, they've, they've got a respiratory rate over 60, but their SATs are over 92, they're between 92 and 94, um, and they're sort of taking over half their feeds. Mm-hmm. What what would we So they're a, tr-
1: yeah, they're a tricky group, as you're implying, and I think particularly they're a tricky group in the primary care setting, because mm. often you don't actually have an accurate saturation monitoring. It's really important to try to. But if you've got children in this amber risk group, there are some important things you need to think about. The first thing is have you got the diagnosis right? So it's always important to think about your differential diagnosis with these babies. Mm-hmm. And as I've explained, bronchiolitis is a very typical clinical picture where we see a few days of chorizoid illness with ongoing and increasing work of breathing. Um, And on the chest, when you listen, very classical, early on, crackles, so bilateral crackles. um, There's usually no focal signs, it's just a generally really noisy, wet-sounding chest. And then as you go further into that illness, you'll hear more in the way of wheeze and bronchospasm. So make sure you've got your diagnosis right. If you if you kind of tickle those boxes, the likelihood is this is bronchiolitis, but you need to think if you've got really high fever, actually, is this sepsis, is it pneumonia? Um, You need to think about a baby's blood sugar and whether actually this could be a uh, work of breathing because of a metabolic presentation. There are various other things that would need to be in your differential diagnosis just just to interrupt you there for
0: a second mm. if you have got a fever can you still have bronchiolitis because i know that yeah. that's confused mm. people.
1: absolutely so children <laughs> with bronchiolitis often do have a fever and that's TV. okay it is okay and i think we're very obviously the nice guidance for assessing fever and specifically particularly in children under 3 months of age is very clear it is clear about needing to go on and do a, a full septic screen but what it does say is if you've got a really obvious reason for mm. a fever for instance a child who's got an absolutely classical picture of bronchiolitis, you can accept that fever yeah. as part of that illness. Obviously, you'd have a very low threshold, and if that child was, you know, popping petechiae all over its body, or there were <laughs> other things that were worrying you, you'd need to yeah. think about further investigations. Um, but yeah, so in terms of this amber group. We need to make sure we've got the diagnosis right, consider other differentials. We also then, once we've decided this is bronchiolitis, need to think about how far into the illness we are. So if you're seeing a baby who is on day one or two of this illness and is already in the amber group, then that would worry me more than if we were more like day five or six into mm. the illness because what tends to happen is you have a peak at around day four or five of how mm. bad the baby's going to be. Um, if you're before that peak, then the chances are the baby's going to get worse mm. before it gets better. Um, and so I always think about the yeah the course of the illness mm. and where you are on that timeline. So that's a really important part of the history, mm. isn't it? I think it's really vital. And sometimes um, it's missed. And, and also for GPs then phoning secondary care... It's a really nice, quick, um, sort of summary. I've got a baby who is day two of illness and is already looking tachypneic and um, mm. h- has increased work of breathing. I'm worried they're going to get worse. Therefore, I need mm. some, you know, further assessment. So, course of illness. Um, make sure you have got the diagnosis right. Then another thing uh, in, in this with this Amber group to think about um, is whether there are any reasons why this baby might be more at risk than mm-hmm. another baby. So we've got groups of babies that we see that are higher risk, so premature babies. So they may be have been born premature and now correct to term, but those babies are still more um, concerning to us because mm. they are likely to have lower birth weight, they're likely to be potentially somewhat immunocompromised and they also potentially are going to have um, chronic lung disease or um, they may even have ongoing oxygen requirement at home, which mm. would obviously put them into a higher risk yeah. group. Um, Any small children, so babies at less than six weeks of age, even if they were born at term, fall into a higher risk. They're more vulnerable to the complications and the more serious um, bronchiolytic pattern or picture, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Any babies with underlying um, chronic disease, so congenital heart disease, um, neuromuscular disease, Mm -hmm. so babies that maybe don't mount a respiratory uh, response in the Mm -hmm. same way as a normal baby other babies mm. to worry about so if this baby has come back to see you so maybe it's been assessed already and actually then the parents have come back um so reattendance is is a is a feature that you shouldn't ignore because yeah. parents parents know their babies don't they mm. they know their babies better than anybody and actually if they're worried their baby's getting worse or that they yeah that they haven't had their kind of their worries assessed in the first place then Mm. and they're back to see you then I would take that seriously just thinking about so those
0: high-risk groups the Mm. premature ones they um, I think also they're quite concerning in a way
1: because they can present slightly differently can't Mm. they Absolutely. So we haven't talked about apnea, but um, in the little babies, and particularly in the ex-prems and in that sort of early neonatal period, um, sometimes babies will present with apnea as a sign of bronchiolitis, Mm. underlying bronchiolitis. We're not really clear on the underlying mechanism for that, but certainly the little babies do tend to have apnea as a presenting feature. So
0: when that happens, does that tend Mm. to be the first sort of a clue to this illness and then it progresses into more classical picture of bronchiolitis
1: rather than them having respiratory distress and mm -hmm. then just it can be absolutely so you'd sometimes get the snot as well and then apnea later on but yes absolutely it can be early and then obviously your differential diagnosis needs to be wide if you're seeing an infant or a small baby with apnea there's a there's a bigger differential diagnosis and so sometimes as you say they actually get undergo some investigations before they then on day two or three start mm. to get the classical snot and, and secretions clear. Yeah, and everyone says oh obviously the baby's mm. got bronchiolitis.
0: So we've talked about tachypnea as being mm. um, something concerning and so for babies in this age group, we're thinking of over sixty. Really. Yes,
1: so um, up to a year of age, a respiratory rate up to fifty is if up to fifty to sixty is deemed okay. And I think that's obviously in the bigger context as well of including the assessment of the work of breathing. But if you've got babies with um, respiratory rates persistently above sixty, then that is a concerning feature yeah. and needs to at least be explored and investigated.
0: Yeah. And would you expect these babies to be tachycardic as well?
1: They often are tachycardic. Mm. Um, they're, Is that often, they're a bit dry mm, yes it's because they're a bit dry it's sometimes because they're very cross and um, mm-hmm. so these babies will not like being snotty and um, they're often hungry because they can't feed enough mm-hmm. um, and also they're tachycardic sometimes because they're a bit hot so yeah. sometimes they have a low-grade okay. fever which makes them tachycardic so a whole number of things feeding into that physiological spending
0: so finding. so the heart rate that we'd the, heart, the normal range that we'd accept would be, so it says on the Wessex Healthier Together, mm. 110 to 160 for this age group. Yeah, so.
1: and obviously that's quite a wide um wide range, and I think one of the really useful things to do is if you're on a paediatric assessment unit, just watch the direction of that tachycardia, so lots of babies will come in and their initial obs will show a heart rate of perhaps above 160 in the sort of 180s, and actually if that's Um, persistent or increasing then we would be worrying more if that's coming down as babies are settling perhaps with some oxygen therapy then that's a that's a reassuring sign great
0: okay okay so the baby's been referred in been Mm -hmm. assessed in the pediatric assessment unit and we've decided that the baby is working hard it's only on day two of the illness and perhaps needing help with feeds too so we're going to admit the baby what happens then
1: Mm. So um, usually, what happens is the parents cry, especially if it's the first <laughs> baby. Um, so I think that that's bit, me being a bit cheeky, but actually, um, this is although we see it loads, I think we forget what a significant thing this is for parents. So make sure that they're being you know well looked after. We we can see you know ten of these babies a day on our busy paediatric un- assessment units, probably more I'm sure in busy places in Wessex. But actually, each of these babies needs to be kind of cared for in the context of their yeah. family. So I'll put that in there because I'm a whole holistic, touchy-feely paediatrician but look after the parents, explain what's going to happen and what is going to happen is um, we're going to play it by ear a little bit so babies um, respond in different ways They some some, some respond very quickly and actually um, just need some, some low flow oxygen to keep their saps uh, within the normal range and uh, some will need an NG tube to help with feeding so um, often we will kind of change the baby's feeding pattern a little bit because Mm. when babies have got increased work of breathing often they can't tolerate a really big feed so breastfeeding mums often want to comfort their baby with a big breastfeed, and actually although for perhaps a few seconds it does comfort them it often causes problems afterwards because their tiny little stomachs have been distended with a big milk feed Mm. and that just it it causes increased work of breathing It Mm. it it makes it harder for the babies to fill those lungs so We often will feed little and often, so um, we'll perhaps start at between 80 and 100 mils per kilo per day, and then give that in two hourly amounts. But that's you know that there's no rule about this. It's it's often um, something the nurses will help guide you with. Some babies will tolerate their feeds fine, even um, when they've got increased work of breathing. But I think. It, you need to just think about the way that you're going to feed the baby and involve the parents with that and, plan. And you're just constantly reviewing how much they are feeding and whether they Absolutely. need it. Absolutely. So really important to start a fluid in and out chart, you know, a good, mm. a good balance sheet with parents writing down what the babies are having with nurses um, contributing to that as well so that we can get an idea of fluid balance. Um, because occasionally babies really can't tolerate feeding. It is, you know, causing them increased Uh, respiratory distress and so we we do sometimes need to give babies IV fluids. Mm. Um, That's more rare and we do that carefully because they're also at risk of developing um, SIADH and so we don't want to give them lots and lots of fluid. We need to be careful and and restrict their fluid if we're doing Mm. that um, IV.
0: And it's important then to keep the NG tube in at that Mm. point isn't it so that we can
1: aspirate any air. Yeah so um, depending on how you're delivering your oxygen, yes, and and whether babies are swallowing lots of air down, yes, it is useful to get air out. As babies are improving, I quite like to get the NG tubes out quite early on because I think if a baby's going to be able to feed orally, it's much easier to do that without an NG tube in um, than when it's there sort of irritating their gag reflex, but that is as they're improving. But yeah, in the acute setting, it's useful.
0: Great, okay, so let's talk about the respiratory
1: support Mm -hmm. that's on offer. Okey Coke. (laughs) So um, we have got different methods of delivering oxygen to babies. In terms of our what we allow in, uh, in terms of oxygen saturations, the Healthier Together um, advice suggests that SATs below 92% are not normal and therefore you should need supplementary oxygen. Um, I'll talk a bit later about uh, as babies are improving and actually what we allow in terms of saturations. But if you need to deliver oxygen, the the, the first, I guess the, the, the first line method is by delivering nasal um, oxygen Mm. and you could deliver face mask oxygen but again with babies they don't keep that on so they'll just flick it off and back in the day we used to use head boxes yes um, and actually some people some people some places they still do use head box oxygen and it babies tolerate it much better so if you haven't seen it if you're really young it's basically like a big perspex box that goes goes over the baby's head and oxygen is delivered via a pipe into it to kind Mm. of surround the baby in oxygen Um, don't they also have tents yeah yes they have tents. yeah I mean, there's all sorts of methods <laughs> um, it, it is a bit old school but it, it is a useful if babies d- won't tolerate having the prongs up their nose which sometimes it, and also when there's lots of snot sometimes mm. it's quite tricky and small noses when you're trying to get an NG tube up and a nasal prong can be quite tricky and um, more and more we're using um, high flow nasal cannula oxygen therapy um, there's lots of different types of um, machine that will deliver that but essentially what you're doing is humidifying um, oxygen and delivering it at, at a higher flow than you would do mm-hmm. just with uh, your standard nasal prong oxygen it is useful for a number of reasons There, there is it, it, <laughs> if you look at the evidence for actually how much um, pressure support is being delivered by high flow it's, it's a bit unclear mm. but certainly there is um there is an argument to say that you are basically giving the baby a little bit of peep mm. um, it's not like CPAP it, there's not a there's, uh, no, seal. there's no seal exactly mm. um but in my view and I think from the reading that I've done I think to me in bronchiolitis one of the main benefits of high flow is that it's humidified and that helps with uh, secretions so you get lots of secretions in bronchiolitis and actually am um, loosening those secretions and particularly um, in the babies that we then that, that det- deteriorate and need to be intubated um, we know that getting rid of those secretions and physio in an intubated and ventilated baby is often the mainstay of therapy Mm. for bronchiolitis. So actually any method of being able to just loosen those secretions Mm. so that they um, can be kind of swallowed or got rid of in Mm. one way or the other, um, suction if possible, um, is useful.
0: Yeah. So would that replace um, saline
1: nebs or do we still give those on top? Nice guidance for bronchiolitis um, looks at all the different methods of treatment that we've tried over the years mm. and saline nebs, in terms of um, evidence and studies, there's there's no good evidence to say that saline nebs are beneficial in terms of um, improving uh, or reducing need for oxygen or reducing length mm. of stay okay. or any kind of primary yeah. outcome that you could think of really. Yeah. So not thought to be useful.
0: Mm um and then in terms of other things that have been tried yeah. and discounted oh blimey i think
1: pretty much everything's been tried
0: <laughs> so there's still no cure no there really
1: is no cure <laughs> um i wonder if we'll look back in 30 years and we'll listen to this and laugh because someone will have had a cure but anyway um so um you will find people saying oh anecdotally you know it works and for bigger babies some people think that that protropion can be more useful, and I think it, it, it practice varies from place to place. Mm. But if you look at the big RCTs, and if you look at Nice, they suggest that uh, bronchodilators have no place mm. in the treatment of bronchiolitis nor do oral steroids, inhaled steroids, mm. uh, hypertonic saline. What else has been used? Nebulized adrenaline. Nebulized adrenaline. No, no place for it. It doesn't okay. work. Um, uh, various other places. Nitric oxide. Mm. Um, yeah, all sorts of things. So we we'll look at the NICE guidance um, regarding other treatments that might be um, used in bronchiolitis or have been historically. The NICE guidance in uh, point 1, point 4, point 3 says, do not use any of the following to treat bronchiolitis in children. Antibiotics, because it's a virus. <laughs> uh, hypertonic saline. Adrenaline nebulized, salbutamol; montelukast. Iprotropium bromide Systemic or inhaled corticosteroids And finally A combination of systemic corticosteroids And nebulised adrenaline So essentially Nothing works (laughs) We we all feel like we want to do something I think that's the thing But actually it gives parents the the wrong expectation, I think, when we're starting to kind of throw lots of medicines and it. And if we can, across the board, all be doing the same thing, it gives parents a lot more confidence that we're not just holding on to those, those life-saving drugs uh, and <laughs> not giving them to their, their babies. Yeah. Um, nasal suctioning. Ah, nasal suctioning. So at home, um, you'll find all sorts of um, little suckers that you can buy in boots that suck the snot out of babies' noses by various different methods which sound pretty disgusting parents love it because they want to feel like they're doing something and that's the reason that parents use things like um, dehumidifiers and um, your sort of Vicks nasal rubs and all that sort of stuff that don't work they just want to do something Um, nasal suctioning So in hospital, actually, the NICE guidance uh, suggests that nasal suction just before feeds can be of use. Um, We know that if you suck snot, it's not just returns, but actually for a temporary, um, let's try and clear the nose while the baby feeds, it it may be useful, Mm. it's the only thing.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay, so just say we're on the maximum treatment that we've got on the ward, so we're on high flow, Maximum flow. We're in quite a lot of oxygen. Baby's on IV fluids. Mm. There's no oral feeds going in at all. Mm. Um, where
1: can we go from mm. there, or what's potentially likely to happen? So I imagine yeah. parents would be quite worried at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So CPAP um, and BiPAP is is an option. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you see that use much? Um, it d- very much depends on the on the unit that you're working yeah. in. I think in some of the bigger um, units across Wessex, where they've got a got the uh, got the kit. B got the nurses um, who are trained to use it and comfortable with using it, um, and C have got the monitoring availability. Mm. So obviously, if you've got a child on CPAP, they need to be in a high dependency area at least with uh, continuous cardiac monitoring, continuous saturation monitoring. Obviously, um, so it is often limited by what's available, mm. and certainly in the smaller district generals, I think it is it's harder to. Often just get hold of the machines. Sometimes we will have help, certainly in um, Dorset County, we we sometimes have help from the special care baby unit in terms of setting up the CPAP because the nurses are much more used to doing that. Um, But yes, CPAP is certainly useful um, for some babies that do seem to require true PEEP, so end expiratory pressure. um, And there have been head to head studies done with high flow versus PEEP um, versus CPAP. Um, with no real um, sort of advantage of either, um, there is a slightly increased risk of complications, it seems, with CPAP, in terms of particularly thinking about pneumothorax, Mm. um, that does seem to be less with high flow, but that's small. Um, I think with these babies that are clearly deteriorating, CPAP is often um, a bit of a holding measure actually, and ultimately, lots of these really tiny and very seriously ill babies end up getting intubated for exactly as we've mentioned already they often do need to have lots and lots of suctioning mm. and um, physiotherapy a sort of active clearance of the secretions mm. that are sort of contributing to their hypoxia mm. um so yeah we do you know there are a number of babies over the winter period who will need to be intubated ventilated and therefore transferred mm. to PICU um for management mm. yeah it
0: must be full of babies with bronchiolitis at the moment.
1: Yes, so I think um, it's a real challenge, it's a real challenge for PICU over the winter months because um, they obviously have their their planned cardiac operations and those those kids need to be kept well away from this horrible RSV, Um, so it it becomes a a nursing, a sort of management, a a bed difficulty, um, but yeah, lots of these babies do end up in PICU
0: and generally in terms of outcome mm. once they've so even if they get escalated to PICU mm. um, and have a period of intubation do they generally do well? Yes so the
1: um, the the natural course is generally to, um, to improve and uh, have no l- long-term complications there are a group of children who will have um, lung damage following uh, bronchiolitis so bronchiolitis mm. obliterans is um, a really awful uh, chronic respiratory condition, which can happen secondary to bronchiolitis as a as a small baby, um, and can cause lots of kind of ongoing mm. long term respiratory problems. But yeah, the the general pattern is that babies will improve, and, yes. and you know we we see babies who have. I want to do the inverted commas sign, but we're on a podcast, so you can't see me doing <laughs> that. But um, a recurrent is the word I'm thinking about. It was a recurrent bronchiolitis, which I'm not sure I'm not sure if it really is a thing or not. So yeah. there are babies who seem to get bronchiolitis a lot. And whether they do have an underlying um, sort of respiratory compromise that makes them more vulnerable, I, I think it's unclear. Um, often they are babies who are uh, ex-prem babies, and actually mm. probably their lung development is still uh, immature, um but yeah, there, and there's no, there's, there is nothing to say that if you have lots of bronchiolitis as a baby, you go, you go on to develop asthma. so um, parents always ask they you always that. They always ask that. Does it mean they've got <laughs> asthma, doctor? Um, and it's not. It's you know, it's a viral infection. It's a viral lower respiratory tract infection, bronchiolitis, um, which is entirely separate to asthma. Now, obviously, it's common, and and so is asthma. So there are some babies who will have bronchiolitis mm-hmm. and will go on to develop asthma as children. But there is no causative okay. uh, link.
0: Yeah. Um just going back to talk about investigations a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I've got two questions. So the it's caused by RSV or adenovirus and mm. we sometimes do NPAs don't mm. we but not always. Mm-hmm. So
1: there's that and also the role of chest x-rays. Yeah. Do you mind just no, not at all. Those? Um so NPAs um, so that they can be useful so if you know what bug you've got um and everyone's got the same bug everyone can be nursed together because there's no risk of kind of giving someone who hasn't got the bug the bug mm. so essentially rsv bays um is cohort exactly course. cohorting nursing and it's and it is you know it's a real thing we've talked a little bit about beds uh, bed stress and picu but bed stress on our on our in our district generals is really um you know it's significant over the winter periods and so actually if you can keep some of your um side rooms free and actually cohort babies together that can be useful in terms of um other reasons why you do an mpa mm, it, lots of people have there are lots of different opinions about mm. it I think if you've got a child who's perhaps not behaving classically and you're actually wondering whether this is bronchiolitis mm. um if you're kind of using it to help you guide your diagnosis that can also be a, another reason to do an MPA
0: yeah so you're not doing it to get a diagnosis
1: but you're getting it no. but, it might help you confirm your suspicions if it's not t- totally or so yeah. perhaps maybe with those babies who are we talked about the apneic premature babies who don't have classical symptoms right at the mm. beginning but if you do manage to get an mpa that has rsv you might then feel more confident yeah. that you're not missing something m- uh, underlying mm. yeah yeah that's a great point
0: and then chest, X-ray. chest x-rays
1: so Um, I would say a chest x-ray isn't indicated in the majority of babies with bronchiolitis. So if you've got your classical clinical presentation and a baby is behaving like it's got bronchiolitis and it's responding like it's got bronchiolitis, then a chest x-ray is not going to change your management. And my question is always when I'm doing an investigation, how is this going to change things? Mm. I think if you're worried that the baby may have um, a bacterial Infection, so an additional sort of a superadded bacterial pneumonia, um, which can be a complication of, of viral bronchiolitis, and you, uh, again, I still maybe question the uh, whether that is going to change anything. But mm. we do when babies are deteriorating, there perhaps is more of a place. The other thing that we would think about is if we're considering whether a baby has a pneumothorax, mm. then that would. Um, it, obviously that would be an indication to mm. to chest x-ray, as long as it wasn't attention. Um, what we often see with the seriously sick babies with bronchiolitis is a right upper lobe collapse, it's mm. a classical yeah. kind of thing we see with um, complicated bronchiolitis. Obviously if you're going to intubate a baby, you're going to need to get a chest x-ray
0: mm-hmm. to
1: confirm your tube position, so that would be another reason why you would do a chest x-ray, but I think we probably do too many chest x-rays it feels like a comfortable thing to do because we can just do it and it's it's only a little bit of radiation and well let's just get a chest x-ray but I think I would I would really um I'd, I'd kind of challenge people to ask themselves what's it going to change yeah. what's it, why are we doing it
0: Mm. So, I think one last thing that would be useful to talk about is discharge criteria, especially in terms of oxygen saturations.
1: yeah, so I talked about oxygen saturations as being a reason to admit children, and if their sats below ninety two percent um in primary care or in your assessment unit, you would certainly want to assess that baby for a little bit longer and just see what happened to the oxygen requirement as babies are improving perhaps they've had a night on um p a u or maybe they've had i don't know three or four days in in your children's ward with some oxygen um, therapy and with some energy feeding and they're starting to improve. Often we get to the stage where they're just needing this sort of trickle of oxygen and Mm. there's this big question about how low are the SATs allowed to go. Yeah, Yeah, that's like a little poem. Um, And so there was a big study done um, and it was published in the Lancet in 2015 called the BIDS study Mm -hmm. looking at um, the time taken for symptoms to resolve, that was the primary outcome mm. in babies with bronchiolitis. And what they did, they were really clever, they did something to a SATs machine that made it say that the SATs were 94 when the SATs were actually only 90. So <laughs> everybody thought that the baby was had SATs of 94, but actually the baby only had SATs oh, of 90.
0: no, so they acted on... So they having launch. SATS of ninety four when actually exactly. the babies going on yeah. SATS of
1: ninety. So basically, so that was in one cohort and then mm. the other group had um, had a normal saturation monitor. Yeah. So essentially one group only got sat only got oxygen where the SATS went below ninety, whereas the others got it at ninety-four. Um and below 94, and there was basically no difference in those two groups okay. in terms of the resolution of symptoms. Yeah. And so, what they'd suggested was actually, we could probably, if babies are um, keeping their saturations above 90%, mm. um, that would be our kind of cutoff for then okay. for discharge. Now, what we talked about when we were discussing this was that the neurocognitive cognitive outcomes weren't studied as part of this yes, trial. Sure. And I think what parents, I think generally what we worry about is, oh yes, but if a child's persistently hypoxic, isn't it damaging their brain, doctor? And I think that the argument they give in uh, the BIDS um, trial was that we have a a whole cohort of kids who have obstructive sleep apnea, who have been well studied, um, that run their SATs in the sort of high 80s, low 90s for for months to potentially years on end, and their neurocognitive outcomes are okay, Mm -hmm. and actually... These babies have a very short period where their SATs are kind of wow. lowish, yeah. and actually, their argument is that the neuro, uh, the neurodevelopmental or the neurocognitive outcomes are likely to be very um, insignificant. Yeah, so, no,
0: that makes total sense. So because that, that could make a massive difference to the yeah. lo- the workload on the ward because we're often we know the baby's got better and we're just mm. waiting for them to be able to go home and it's waiting for them to sleep that's and right need
1: wafting oxygen that's right and i think <laughs> i think that this i think the practice is changing yeah. i think it's changing in some places quicker than in other places um but yeah i think there, there is an argument to say that if your sats if the baby is improving um has got kind of over the worst of it is feeding okay and sats are above 90 percent it's okay to go home mm. it's getting better and yeah. you know with with really good safety netting which can be provided via healthier together with um, the excellent bronchiolitis handout which will again just show parents what to worry about in terms of mm. if the baby's going backwards and it's having more features in the amber box or the red box then they need to give us a call and we'll reassess the baby
0: so essentially bronchiolitis is going to run its course and it might be a rough course but it
1: will absolutely resolve. That's exactly right. And like I said, I think it's just really important to manage parents' expectations and to let them know that often, especially with the little babies, the neonates, they're going to be in hospital for, you know, sometimes a week or so. And and in terms of resolution of symptoms, again, when they go home, they're not going to be completely better when they go home. Yeah. So explaining to parents that the likelihood is they're going to cough and wheeze for several weeks probably after yeah. um, after discharge and that there are, is a group of babies that will continue to cough and wheeze for months to a year or sometimes even over a year as a result of their lungs recovering from bronchiolitis. And if they are well in themselves, feeding okay, growing okay, it's okay for them to cough and wheeze. Yeah, that's
0: really useful to know, isn't it? Because it's such a yeah. simple thing that someone comes back months after bronchiolitis and yeah. oh, they're still wheezing coughing and just to be able to say that yeah. is
1: really helpful and I think if we you know if we te- if we preempt preempt it and let parents know that that might happen they yeah. worry about it a lot less.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much Claire. I think we've covered quite a lot about bronchiolitis today and I think this is going to be really useful actually for GPs and uh, medical and nursing staff in hospitals too. Um, hopefully using resources like Wessex Healthier Together is going to make um communication between primary and secondary care a lot easier to make sure that we're all um using the same framework um also the parent information leaflets are invaluable and um, i know that in dorset county we definitely give them out every time someone goes home with that condition it's just a really good way of safety netting so um yeah thank you so much for your time for your input and your um, thoughts on bronchiolitis that's okay anything else I think that's bronchiolitis pretty much covered. So thank you so much once again, Dr. Claire Hollingsworth for joining me, Caroline Storey on Fontanelle. And until next time, goodbye.